Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Daniel Golden. We are privileged to serve the saints of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we take a look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday Divine Service. Today we're going to be taking a look at the readings for Reminisare Sunday, otherwise known as the Second Sunday in Lent. Remember. Remember your mercy, O Lord. That's how the introit starts. That's where the Latin name of the Sunday comes from. And there's uh, a lot of remembering going on here because the people of God tend to forget. Uh, God's memory is perfect. Our memory is not. And so God's word teaches us. God's word creates in us that knowledge, that certainty, uh, the German word there is gewiss, that certainty that God is for us and not against us. Uh, Vicar, the gospel reading for Lent 2 is Matthew fifteen twenty one to 28. It is a marvelous account, and it is also one of the more challenging accounts in all of Scripture. We're going to unpack that for us uh, in just a little bit. You want to share those words, Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Okay, here we have this uh, yearly journey to Matthew 15, and we, uh, we have to tackle the uh, difficult saying of Jesus here, the difficult response of Jesus here. What is he saying? Why is he saying it? What is he not saying? And uh, there would be uh, all kinds of uh, crazy, wacky, false understandings and interpretations of what's going on here. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is in the one-year lectionary, Pastor, because not only uh, is the one-year lectionary not afraid of the difficult sayings of Jesus, but the one-year lectionary, because of repetition, it is teaching us the importance of knowing certain teachings in the Holy Scriptures. And uh, this is one that we have every year, and this is one that is extremely important for us to get right. Uh, Pastor, Jesus went away from there 
and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Where was he? Where is he going? And is it significant? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And so <clears throat> I'm turning well, here in my Bible. a good question because I asked it. What, what has <laughs> happened immediately before this is that uh, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus is rejected at his hometown of Nazareth and uh, is driven out from there and kind of leaves there for the last time. Then we have the death of John the Baptist. After this, Jesus heals someone who's sick in the town of Gennesaret, uh, which is right there on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's kind of between Nazareth and Capernaum. And so. Uh, isn't it, the Sea of Galilee also sometimes referred to as Lake Gennesaret? It, it is. Um, and so that tells us the close proximity. Right. Just for people that actually read their Bibles. For, for a, a purely geographical point of view to get from Nazareth to Capernaum, you have to go down this particular valley, and there's this big mountain that you go right by where Gennesaret is located. Uh, it's also nearby to Magdala, which would be Mary Magdalene be from there. But so he's passing through these areas, crossing over, um, and it says right here before we begin, um, when the men of the place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And I think then uh, this is kind of an important thing here in preparing us for what's going to happen to this uh, Canaanite woman. And it, one more thing that happens right there before that that's important. We also have right here before this Jesus saying it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out that defiles a person. In other words, your confession, what do you believe, what do you say, uh, your confession of faith is an important thing. And all these things help us then to understand what's actually going to be happening here in Matthew 15. The, uh, the reason, folks, uh, that uh, I often start our uh, discussion this way to give us the context of what's going on. This is this is sometimes lost when you take little snippets of Scripture, like we're forced to do because we only have so much time in a uh, divine service. But when you, when you take little snippets of Scripture out of their context, you sometimes miss so many things that are going on when when uh, people are just simply touching the garment of Jesus we're reminded of the woman with the uh, issue of blood who touches the garment of Jesus um, what comes out of the mouth not what goes into the mouth this this theme is ever present in the entire New Testament not only in the gospel accounts so we have so much that are going on here this woman it tells us in the uh, in the text is a Canaanite, woman. So wouldn't every woman in Tyre and Sidon be a Canaanite woman? Why is it significant that uh, uh, this specific point is highlighted in our text? Well, it's significant because of the tension that exists between the people of Israel and the people of Canaan. It goes all the way back into the time of Abraham, and uh, the Israelites are circumcised. The Israelites receive God's word. They're separated from the other peoples and called uh, to be the nation through which the Savior is born. And this tension and this conflict between the two groups elevates throughout all the years to the point where at the time of Christ, 
Canaanites and Israelites don't interact with each other in the same way that the Romans and the Israelites don't interact. The Israelites think they're the chosen people. They think they're special and different than everybody else, and they don't want to be made ceremonially unclean by interacting with these people that are not of the chosen race like they are. And so... Even in saying that, we see how significant it is what comes out of the mouth uh, as opposed to what goes into it. What's their confession here? We deserve uh, God's favor. We deserve um, to interact with the Christ and be healed and saved by him. You don't because you're a Canaanite. And so we see kind of that conflict that's there that goes all the way into the time of the early church as well. Now, we know from other parts of Scripture that Jesus going to Tyre and Sidon is a fulfillment of prophecy, that he would actually do this, that his uh, teaching us that his mission is not only for the lost tribes of Israel or for the children of Israel, but for all people, every ri- uh, tribe, nation, people, people group, color uh, throughout the entire world. And that's really what, what is being highlighted in this text. Pastor, this Canaanite woman seeks out Jesus, she recognizes him, or she knew she, he was coming, uh, he, she seeks out Jesus, and the words coming out of her mouth do not sound like the words that would come out of your standard, ordinary, everyday Canaanite person. Uh, she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And then she gives her uh, prayer request, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. What is significant here, Pastor, about the fact that she cries to Jesus, calls him Lord, calls him Son of David, and then knows that he is one that brings mercy? What's going on here? Yeah, it it indicates a confession of faith that's coming out of her mouth, just as we kind of talked about to set this up. She's confessing the truth that uh, a Jewish person would be willing to confess about the Christ, that the disciples are willing to confess about Christ. She's confessing the same faith that they have, that Jesus is the Lord, uh, meaning uh, the Lord who made heaven and earth in Genesis, who called Abraham. Uh, She's acknowledging he's the one true God. She calls him son of David, acknowledging the kingship of the uh, Davidic throne uh, and and that whole line, which would be a big deal for a Canaanite um, who had been removed from those towns by David and the uh, the Jews uh, at the time of Judges before that. And so in saying those things, she is confessing the true faith and then asking for mercy from Jesus uh, is a confession that he is God and able to give that as well. And so all these things indicate her confession of faith is correct. This is uh, amazing Christology that is coming out of this Canaanite woman. She's confessing that Jesus is God in the flesh, the Messiah who has come to bring mercy. Isn't this an amazing confession, Um, one that we would love to hear from the people of God today, that we would love to hear uh, in in our pews today, that people would realize that Jesus is true God and true man and his primary mission is mercy? Yeah, it definitely is. And I think, too, we can go back to the Old Testament and see this as kind of a fulfillment of what happens in 1 Kings 17, where Elijah goes and stays with the widow at Zarephath. I think Jesus himself uh, says this at some point in the gospel, and, and 
off the top of my head, I'm thinking here where he says, um, Elijah sent or God sent Elijah to a widow in Zarephath, not to a widow in Israel. And this is kind of the same thing here as well. Jesus is coming here for this woman who's outside the promise from the point of view of the Jews, but not from the point of view of God. We we oftentimes skip over the marvelous confession of the Canaanite woman here because it is the response of Jesus that is so shocking. She gives this great confession. She cries out with her need for her daughter uh, and Verse 23 of Matthew 15, but he did not answer her a word. Pastor, we've got about a minute left in this segment. Uh, What can you teach us with regard to the silence of Jesus? Well, in some regard, that's the way God oftentimes seems when we talk to him. Uh, Lots of times we feel like we don't have an answer that's clear-cut that comes forth. But I think here also, Jesus is teaching all those who are watching in this way. The answer that they expect a Jew to give to a Canaanite would be silence. And so he is being silent in giving this woman the opportunity to further confess, to further show uh, how great her faith is. Not that she's saved by showing her faith, but rather she's saved because she trusts in Jesus uh, at the power of his word. And so we're going to see as this goes on, uh, he is silent. He says some things that uh, would be expected to say to a Canaanite, you're not part of the promise. And she still shows her faith and confesses it in truth. And at that point, God gives mercy, showing that this mercy isn't the old way. It's a new way of giving mercy. We're going to see a great reversal happening when we come back from our break, a marvelous gospel reversal. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the second Sunday in Lent. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We're looking at the readings for the second Sunday in Lent in our earlier segment. We introduced our gospel reading, Matthew 15, 21 to 28, Jesus and his encounter with the Canaanite woman. Um, it is uh, it is an amazing gospel reading, one that, that so often is misinterpreted, uh, People look to Jesus the racist, Jesus the misogynist, Jesus unloving and uncaring, and it is exactly the opposite of all of those things that people might foolishly think from just the uh, first reading or the first glance at this particular text. So we have Jesus and the woman at the we- or the Canaanite woman. She comes to Jesus. She makes a marvelous confession of faith. Jesus is silent. And everybody expects Jesus to be silent because, as Pastor Moline uh, beautifully articulated in our first segment, uh, Jews and Canaanites uh, do not interact. They don't interact because uh, of the holiness laws. The uh, Canaanites were um, non-believers, and yet this Canaanite woman is a believer. She has a request. 
he is silent, and uh, the disciples pick up on that very well. Uh, Vicar, would uh, would you uh, pick up at verse twenty three and uh, read verse twenty three to the end of the text? We'll get it fresh in our brain. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, "Send her away." For she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Okay. The reaction of the disciples, they heard Jesus' silence as a plea to send her away. Pastor, uh, what's going on here? Well, yeah, they're still operating in the way that they understand is correct with the separation that God has only come for the Jewish people, that God only is going to save the Jewish people, and that everybody else is um, down the creek without a paddle. Out of luck. Out Out of luck. luck. And so when they see the woman crying out, crying out, crying out, and Jesus acting like he hasn't heard, then they come and they say, listen, just send her away. Don't just ignore her. Just tell her the truth to buzz off and, uh, you know, uh, make like a tree and leaf, make like a baby and head out, however you want to say it. Uh, go away. Tell her that. And and the word in the Greek here is, uh, it's in the iterative sense. It's in the imperfect tense. Uh, and what it means is they kept on saying, tell her to go away. Get rid of her. Release her. Send her away. And that's what they're doing because that's the way they understand things as well. They interpret Jesus' silence as saying she's not worthy. And so they follow up on that with saying, get out of here. You're not worthy. And what you just said is great because what is the worthiness that Jesus actually cares about? For them, it's their lineage and their maybe their works or their deeds and things like that. Um, and, and the question we have to ask, is that what Jesus is looking for? Jesus then uh, continues on with their uh, stereotypical uh, understanding. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of times a pastor does this. Maybe it's in confirmation class. Maybe it's with a visitor who uh, uh, inquires about coming to the table to receive the Lord's Supper. The pastor will ask a question, and the individual will say something. And then the pastor will say something in response, trying to flesh out uh, the true confession or the true answer. And so it seems to me that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Jesus in verse 24 says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. A common misunderstanding of the existence of of the children of Israel, the existence of the Jewish nation, and that the Messiah was only for the Jews. Pastor, why why does Jesus say this at this point? Well, um, Jesus is... He Once again, he's still doing what they expect, but he is, in this case, speaking a word of truth. The question that we have to answer is who are the lost sheep 
of the house of Israel. Aha, and aha. if it's just the people who are descended from Abraham, that's a different understanding than which, and I think that's what the disciples are going to interpret it as, than um, what Jesus himself teaches and says, you know, I could raise children of Abraham from these stones, uh, or um, e- even the sense we as Christians today, we consider ourselves children of Abraham in the sense that we confess the same faith in that way. I'm going to use this term. It's kind of like the apostolic succession, the faith that passes on all the way back from Abraham to us is the same. And in that regard, we are children of Abraham, whether we're descended from Jewish lineage or not. And that's the thing Jesus is looking for, but the disciples see it in the more limited sense of the definition. The term is not used in this text, but he's really teaching us about the new Israel and who belongs to the new Israel, and that's all who call on Jesus as Lord and Savior. It is, uh, you know, the woman, uh, she she is persistent. She's persistent in her prayer, persistent in her appeal, Lord, help me. And he answered, and this is probably where most people stumble at this text, verse 26. He answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Pastor, is Jesus calling the Canaanite woman a dog here? Um, indirectly, I'd say yes. Um, and I know we might be offended at that, but the reality of all of us is that we're in that same case. If we're going to sit down and talk about what we deserve from God, is there any of us who deserve a seat at God's table? Nope. Is there any of us who deserve all the blessings uh, that God promises to give to his people? And, and like you said, the answer is no. None of us are worthy. None of us deserve it. None of us are more righteous uh, in ourselves than any other. All of us are, as Luther had in his pocket when he died, beggars, truly. Uh, and this woman, in her confession of faith, what's going to come out of her lips is going to acknowledge that fact as true. No, I don't deserve it, but I know that you still drop some crumbs, and that's all I want. This woman is not a 21st century snowflake uh, and triggered by a microaggression against her. She hears Jesus' words for what they are. They are law, just like what you're saying that no one is worthy, and in so doing, draws out an even more beautiful confession of faith. The woman responds to Jesus, verse 27, yes, Lord. She says, yes, I agree, I acknowledge, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's lap. What is so significant and so marvelous about this statement, which is truly a confession of faith? Well, she allows what God's word about herself is to be true. she That's really what confession means, to say the same thing as another person. In acknowledging the word of God through Jesus, she's saying, your word is true, and so as a result, here's what I need from you. Consider the apostles, right, as they're standing here and watching this. Oh yeah, she doesn't deserve it. We do, not her. And in that confession of faith, they're denying their own sin. They're denying their own unworthiness. She's acknowledging that God says she's not worthy, and 
then begging for mercy, which is the very thing Jesus is eager to give here. And and I just think it's great then. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem saying that I'm a sinner. Um, I just want what you promise to give to sinners, even if it's just the crumbs. And I think this is great for us to consider during the season of Lent, right? Uh, Lent is here for us to be repentant, to consider our own state and reality, and to speak the truth about it, and to say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone, by my fault, my own fault, my own most grievous fault, to say that before God, because that's what his word teaches. If we actually really read God's word and consider our own lives, we find that we sin in thought, word, and deed all the time, day in and day out, and that we are completely unworthy of what God gives. And yet he still allows the crumbs to fall to us. He still allows his mercy to leak out to us and forgives us completely and totally through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting in this section of Matthew where in the context earlier where people only needed to touch the garment of Jesus uh, to be healed, this woman recognizes all I need is a crumb. All I need is a crumb. You are the master. You are the Lord. You are merciful. All I need is a crumb because a crumb from you is the greatest thing in the history of the world. Verse 26, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Her daughter was healed instantly. Now, we we have a miraculous healing that is going on. It is done instantly. We see the power of Jesus, the power of the word of Jesus. But I want to focus on uh, with the time that we have left, Pastor. Oh, woman, great is your faith. What is he saying here, and what is he not saying? Well, Faith always has an object, and and that's important to understand. So the object of her faith is Jesus, uh, and that he's the one who can save her. And as long as our faith is that Jesus is the one who saves us, uh, that's the saving faith that Christ is talking about. And we see that demonstrated in all the things that have taken place in this gospel lesson. We run the danger, just like the apostles in this particular text, of thinking that faith is our work and that it's our good deed that uh, God is rewarding and that we're the author of our faith. And if we're thinking about it that way, then it's not a good faith because we aren't actually trusting that Jesus is the Savior, but we have a little bit of ourselves that thinks we are the Savior for ourselves. And there's the issue that we oftentimes run into with faith. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Faith is the Holy Spirit's work. He calls, gathers, and enlightens, and sanctifies the entire church. It's not us. Faith isn't about me at all. Faith is always only about Jesus and about God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that's important to understand. Faith is not some innate quality inside of us that makes God love us. Faith is a joyous response to the Word of God, which is his love for us. And I think properly understood, this text marvelously confesses that faith. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is merciful. The power of God's word is amazing to do things beyond our wildest dreams. And we are to cling to Jesus. That's what makes our faith great. It's because Jesus is great. When we come back from our break, we want to take a look at the Old Testament reading for the second Sunday in Lent, Genesis 32, 22 to 32. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Jesus, behold. 
95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We're privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We're located at 3825 Wildbriar Lane in South Lincoln. Come join us. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday School for All Ages in between. During the Lenten season, we have two Wednesday worship services, 4 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. with a fellowship meal in between. All of our services are broadcast live on KNNALP right here in Lincoln, Nebraska, 95.7. Check us out on the uh, internet or your handheld device. Lots of programming available on the archives of our uh, website as well, thecross957.org. The Old Testament reading for the second Sunday in Lent is from Genesis 32, and I just love these Old Testament narratives, especially from the book of Genesis. Vicar, Genesis 32, 22 to 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. We got a lot of wonderful things going on in this text, and we got a couple of bizarre things too, you know, about the the hip socket ligament that we're not going to eat and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's easy to get bogged down in the minors here uh, or to talk about, well, how come the Old Testament people had more than one wife, uh, all that kind of stuff. That's uh, that's maybe a theme for a different program. Uh, I don't think I don't think we want to um, uh, 
get stuck in that rut at this point in time. Not that we're afraid of those questions, but that's not the most important thing that's going on here. And, and even, uh, and I think Pastor Jonathan Fisk has a good video on this, the translation uh, into English from the Hebrew. We have in, in the things that Vicar just read where it says, Jacob said this, and then God says that. And in the Hebrew, all it says throughout this entire thing is, he said, he said, he said, and it doesn't tell us which one is which. And so it kind of leaves it a little ambiguous. Yeah, and uh, there are a lot of those intentional ambiguities in Scripture. Ambiguities. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. Okay, so, Pastor, in this particular narrative, we have this encounter that's happening. uh, Jacob leaves Laban, and he wants to go back home, but he's deathly afraid of Esau, his brother, and what's going to happen to him when he comes face-to-face with Esau. The next chapter, chapter 33, we have the encounter between Jacob and Esau. And so in between here, we have this wrestling match with Jacob and somebody. So, uh, Pastor, a little bit about the context of this happening between leaving Laban and the eventual encounter with Esau. Well, um, the, the context of it, you mean? Or? Yes, yes, yes. The the context is just like you said, Jacob uh, has not gotten along with Esau. Esau, if you really want to get down to it, Esau confessed that he didn't have the right faith. He was willing to sell his birthright, which is the birthright for the Savior. He's willing to sell uh, that for a, a bowl of soup. And then uh, Jacob also kind of cheats a little bit to get the blessing from uh, his father Isaac when Isaac dies. This all comes forth and, and shows itself at the birth of Christ, the fulfillment of these things in the sense that Herod the Great is descended from Esau and uh, Jesus is descended from Jacob. And so so that's kind of a, a fulfillment that happens. Uh, but this has caused conflict between Jacob and Esau. Uh, and so Jacob runs away in a way with a tail between his legs. And and um, uh, now because of conflict with his father-in-law too, who's also treated him poorly and lied to him, Jacob's returning home. Uh, and I think this is because of God's work. God promises to give the land of Canaan to his descendants, and so he needs to return there and live there. And there's so much here, I don't even know where to get started on the context, but essentially that's what he's doing. He's returning home, crossing the Yabbok River, which is located today in Jordan mostly, uh, and a little bit in Syria, on his way back home to cross the Jordan and enter into the Promised Land. That that's plenty for this particular program, Pastor. Thank you so much. Um, Jacob uh, is worried that uh, there's going to be a major conflict, maybe even a major battle. He uh, he sends his uh, wives and his children across the stream, uh, everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. It seems to me that one of the things God is teaching us here that while Jacob was left alone. Jacob was never alone. Is that yeah. is that a fair observation? I th- I think that's a, a part of it, and I think that's something we can draw from this. And and especially when we face those challenging times, God is always with us. Uh, that's very important. Okay, so um, uh, it see it says here, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. 
this wrestling match between Jacob and somebody. Uh, help us understand what's going on here. Uh, was this a dream? Did this really happen? Uh, did Jacob imagine it? Uh Help us. Yeah, it really truly does happen, and the person that he's wrestling with is God, if you will. And the way we know this really truly happened, it wasn't just a dream, is Jacob is limping afterwards uh, because he's actually injured in this conflict. What I think, and this is my thoughts, so you correct me if you think I'm overstepping here. What I think is happening is we have to go back to Genesis chapter 25 when Jacob and Esau are conceived and are growing within the womb of their mother. Uh, it says in uh, Genesis 25 verse 22, the children struggled together within her womb and she said, uh, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? In fact, the two kids in the womb are fighting so much that it's bothering the mom. And we know the, the birth, they're, they're one comes out and then comes back in and goes out a different way. Uh, this weird thing happening with these twins. Jacob runs away from his twin out of fear. And now he's coming back and he's still terrified of fighting with his brother. And who shows up to fight with him? in the middle of the night then. It's not his brother, it's God. Who's the one we really ought to worry about? Who's the one who's sending him? God is. He shouldn't be afraid of going back to his brother because God's on his side and he doesn't want to wrestle with God. That's the one who will win, who won't let him lose. Uh, and so I think there's something of that to take place, and maybe you can help me figure out a little more of that. But No, I, I like what you've said. Um, when, we, when we have this wrestling match with God, we know that God... Um, with the flick of his finger, can wipe out uh, Jacob. Uh, so how could we equate the wrestling of God with Jacob to the humiliation of Christ who uh, allows himself to be arrested and beaten and mocked and crucified when he has all the power of God? Uh, is, is this a kind of a precursor to the humiliation of the God-man Jesus? I, th I think to a certain extent, right? Because in Christ, we see that there's nothing in this world that can defeat him, right? Uh, not uh, powers, nor depths, nor heights, nor anything of all creation can defeat Jesus, not even death itself. And in the same way, Jacob's afraid of going back to his brother, afraid that his brother's going to kill him and take his stuff, right? But who's on his side? Who's on Jacob's team? God is, and God's on his side for the sake of the birth of the Messiah through Jacob's uh, descendants. And when we face these challenges and difficulties, who's on our team? God, the same way, the guy who overcame death in the grave. And so even if your life is so miserable that there's no way out and uh, you're doomed to be executed or killed or uh, cancer or, um, you know, Parkinson's or dementia, whatever it is, God's on your team and he's got your back. And even if the world looks like it's beat you, he hasn't beat God and God will come out victorious in the end. So that's important for us to know. Very, very good. Um, you know, and Jacob realizes this. In uh, verse 30, he says, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob knows who he is and who God is, and he knows that God in his mercy has spared him here. Uh, Pastor, uh, in the time that we have left, this whole name change from Jacob to Israel, 
Why does God change his name? Well, um, the word Israel, uh, if we were to translate it literally, means to struggle with God or to wrestle with God or to fight with God in some way. So literally... Uh, he's named for what has happened. Right, and and I think that's something that when we read our English translations, we don't really realize all the names of all the people, almost uh, 90% or more in the Old Testament, the names mean exactly what the person is doing. Even in the New Testament, right, uh, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. And so when God changes his name from Jacob, uh, help me out, Jacob means either liar or cheater, right, something like that. Trickster, Trickster. that's how I remember it. So uh, that's what he had done to get the birthright from his brother, but now his name has changed from being trickster to being one who's wrestled with God. And the, the prestige, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, the, the what comes along with it um, is important for who he is as the forefather to our Lord Jesus Christ, who will really wrestle with God in terms of earning our salvation. I want to uh, I want to equate the name change that's going on here with what happens in holy baptism, where God puts His name on us, and uh, we are given the name Christian. Uh, can I do that, or is that a bit of a stretch? Well, I think that's an important thing, and it's a part of the baptismal rite all the way back to the very very beginning, where you'd go from your pagan name, um, you know, like. Alexander or uh, Julius or Clint, and you were given a Christian name that actually confessed that you belong to the real true God, like Timothy, right? Honoring God, or um, we could go through lots of them, but that's the reality of what used to happen, and uh, it's probably something that we ought to consider and think about when we're naming our own children today. All right, very good. Uh, Whatever your struggle is, uh, don't be quite so concerned about your struggle. Uh, The most important thing is your relationship with the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we come back, we're going to take a look at our epistle reading for the second Sunday in Lent, Romans 5, 1 to 5. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Get your sinless death that's brought us life eternal peace and rest. Only what your grace has taught us calms the sinner's deep distress. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we gather together and we look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday Divine Service. We are looking at the readings for the second Sunday in Lent. Remember, reminiscere Sunday. Remember your mercy, O Lord. We have God's mercy toward Jacob in our Old Testament reading. We have God's mercy to the Canaanite woman in our Gospel reading. And we have God's mercy to all mankind. You can't get any more Lutheran. You can't get any more uh, justification rich than digging into the book of Romans, especially Romans 4 and 5. Vicar, our our epistle reading, Romans 5, 1 to 5, you want to share those words, please? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope is the word that just keeps jumping off the page, and we want to put that in the uh, proper context of what uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to us here in Romans 5 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pastor, can you give us a really, really, really quick rundown of Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4 to get us to this point? Well, um, yeah, maybe. Um, Romans, uh, of course, is one of those really detailed uh, uh, theological books that's written to the people living in Rome that were converted to Christianity by St. Paul. Uh, And so in that way, he is kind of trying to teach them the entire faith in one letter, which is uh, a huge task, which he does fantastically. He starts, uh, talks about uh, kind of sin and that the reality that there are sinners uh, and that we are righteous not because of not being sinners, but rather because Christ has bled and died for us. We're righteous. The righteous shall live by faith, he says. Um, God's righteous judgment, therefore, is poured out upon God. Uh, we have the, the law and discussion of judgment and the law and how God's righteousness is upheld, and we're not exempt from that, but we're justified by faith, just as Abraham was, kind of going back to Genesis. So, I'm just kind of flying by here real quick, not giving details, but that's where we're at. Yes, uh, the first three chapters, or the first two and a half chapters, are hard, hard-hitting law. And then uh, starting in chapter three, through the end of chapter five, we have some of the most beautiful gospel in all of Scripture. And then and then chapter six, we'll begin a discussion of baptism, how de- God delivers the goods. So we're right here in this gospel section. The key word is justification and what God is linking justification to in this particular text is the word hope. There are many times when people lose hope. We have almost an epidemic of hopelessness in our world today, and it's not just the world today. It's this been this way ever since uh, Adam and Eve brought sin into the world. It just seems worse now because we're living in it. Uh, suicide rates are up. Depression is uh, at an all-time high. We have cancer. We have heart disease. We have all kinds of other medical issues. We have the coronavirus that everybody is afraid of. We got all these things that are going on in our world, and we just need some hope. So where do we find that hope? And God's Word teaches us where our hope is in any and every situation. Is that is that a fair way to bring us to these words of the text, Pastor? Yeah, I think also, as we said before, it's kind of a uh, practical application of our Old Testament and our gospel lesson. We have the woman who's suffering with her <clears throat> wanting uh, healing and mercy from Jesus, and she's begging and begging and begging, and it seems like she's not getting it. We have Jacob, who's run away from home, essentially, and has suffered laboring for his father-in-law, who mistreated him. His brother, he's afraid, will kill him, and he doesn't know what to do. He's separating himself from his family to try and keep them safe while he 
is afraid that he'll be killed so they don't get killed also. And so the suffering, 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 and what's our hope then? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, amen. Vicar, uh, earlier in Romans, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are freely justified in Christ Jesus. Paul starts out here in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. What does it mean to be justified by faith? Well, it starts first with the word giving us the faith and making us justified and righteous. So being justified and being righteous uh, before God through our Lord Jesus Christ is being in line with him. It's being a right with him, and it's only done through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we all have sinned and fall short of that glory. So simultaneously, while we're here on this earth, we are sinner. But we are also uh, have the concrete hope to stand in the, the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Pastor, sometimes this uh, justification word is uh, referred to as courtroom talk. When people talk that way, what do they mean? Well, um, if you're the person on trial in a court, you're hoping uh, for a verdict. Either uh, uh, you're going to get either a verdict of guilty or a verdict of not guilty. And um, you're hoping for the verdict, of course, of not guilty. And in a sense, that is justification. In other words, what's the reason that you're not guilty? Uh, that's what justification is dealing with. And so in, in the real world, we justify ourselves saying, you know, it wasn't my fault that I ran the person over with my car they ran out in front of me in the street self-justification when we're dealing though with God the justification the reason that we aren't declared guilty is uh, because Jesus already paid for the the sin he already died for it we are forgiven by God Uh, and so when God looks at us we're not guilty for the sake of Christ that's justification is the faith of the Canaanite woman that we uh, that Jesus extolled any different than the faith that Paul is talking about here, therefore, since we are justified by faith? No, because where does she go for the solution to her problem? She doesn't deal with it herself. She can't. She doesn't deal with it uh, by giving someone else money or, or seeing a doctor or anything like that. Rather, she turns to Jesus and begs for mercy from him, and that's exactly the right place to receive true justification is from God. Is the faith of Jacob that uh, we see extolled in our Old Testament reading any different from the faith of the Canaanite woman or the faith that Paul is talking about here in Romans 5? Again, I'd say no. He's got this difficult situation. Where does he go? He goes to Christ. Amen, amen, amen. We don't want to pit one part of God's word against another. Okay, I think it's interesting here the progression that we see. Since we have been justified by faith, this is a done deal on account of the person work of Jesus Christ, this declaration that is ours by grace through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor, what what kind of peace do we have? We have the peace that surpasses all understanding because of what God has declared for us through Jesus Christ. We are no longer in conflict with God, but instead um, uh, he is on our team, if you will, or we are on his team, however you want to say it. Uh, We are Christian now, and, and that's the good news then.
One of the things that is uh, brought out later on in uh, Romans chapter 5 is the contrast between the sin of Adam and its consequences and the obedience or righteousness of Jesus and its consequences. And we, this peace that we have is a removal of this um, result of the fall that causes us to be enemies with God. We are acquitted now. We are no longer enemies. And I think we so often take that for granted. God is teaching us here that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then all of these things that flow from that peace that has been earned by the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. Pastor, in verse 2, it says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. When I was young, I was always taught that this access that we are talking about is referring to the temple curtain being torn, the uh, priesthood of all believers, the royal priesthood. I don't need a priest to be my go-between between me and God now because Jesus is that go-between and all of that has been removed. Is that the access that Paul is talking about here, or is there something else going on? Well, I think that's a beginning understanding of it, and maybe it's not the wrong way to talk about it. Um, but we we can talk to Jesus, but it doesn't mean that uh, we don't still go through means, and that, that means is the Word and the sacrament. So we can't find God apart from those things. That's how that uh, discussion that you just said oftentimes gets abused. You know, I don't need to go to church because I just talk to him directly while I'm out fishing or shopping on Sunday morning. Uh, that, that would be an abuse of that access. But maybe we can think about it in terms of this woman who's a Canaanite who's been uh, separated from God uh, by this con between the Jews and the Gentiles for many, many time years. What's she do? She still comes before Christ and begs for mercy. She's able to talk to him and receive that mercy at his word. And that's the same way that we can receive God's mercy as well. We beg for it in our prayers. We ask him to have mercy upon us, this Lenten tide. And in his word, he tells us that's exactly what he has accomplished for us. The, uh, the structure in the Greek language here too, this access is not just a one-time access in, but it is an ongoing thing. And that that ties in correctly and beautifully what you just said about, well, we don't just stay away from church now or stay away from the Word of God because we got in the door. This is something that we desire, an ongoing thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like a library card, right? You got a library card, now you can check out the books, so that's what you go and you do. And now you're a Christian, you've been baptized in Christ, and so you continually come back and receive the gifts that he keeps on giving out. Um, I love how Luther says it in the Catechism, right? How could we ever stop learning what God never stops teaching? And that's the, the Christian life then. Beautiful, beautiful. And then uh, the kicker here, uh, because of all this, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, uh, but we still continue to live in a fallen world. And then God teaches us how we can rejoice in hope. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So it is this, this circle that God continually brings hope to us, even in the midst of our suffering, because this peace that Christ has won for us is real. 
It is as real as his Good Friday death and his Easter resurrection for you and for the life of the world. Sadly, we need to bring this uh, segment to a close. Vicar, would you pray the collect for the second Sunday in Lent? Let us pray. O God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 Sunday morning when you get up, drink your coffee, read your paper, pray for your pastor, and above all, go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ. We'll see you again next week.